Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland, happy to have you once again tuning in on your podcast devices. And man, oh man, the weather has changed quite a bit here up in Montana where I'm broadcasting from. We woke up to about seven inches of snow and about five degrees when I got up at about 4 a.m. this morning. A little bit different situation uh, for our guests down in Colorado today where wildfires are just impacting so much of Colorado here in the fall of 2020. But uh, our guest is, is, a, is a name known within the NCBA, especially on the airwaves of RFD-TV. We're actually going to have a conversation with the Cattleman to Cattleman TV show host, Kevin Auctioner. And Kevin, uh, how are things down there? I know it's probably pretty smoky and, and it's a very serious situation with fires down in your part of, uh, of, of uh, just the whole state of Colorado. But uh, how, how are things for you down there today? Yeah, it's extraordinarily serious, uh, Lane. And, and first of all, thanks for having me uh, on the show. I, I really appreciate all that you do and the kinds of guests that you get on here and happy to be part of that. But um, yeah, we are now, uh, this uh, this fire has extended to be the, become the largest fire in Colorado history. It's well over 200,000 acres now. Uh, I just heard uh, this afternoon that uh, even though we thought Estes Park was going to be, you know, safe from this, they began evacuating folks from the west side of Estes Park. And I know uh, Grand Lake got evacuated last night. So with every uh, change in the wind direction, it seems to create even more challenges. And uh, yeah, our state is on fire out here in the Eastern Plains. Clearly, our biggest concern is um, an ongoing drought. And we would all be uh, well served with that seven inches of snow that you just mentioned down here in mm-hmm. Colorado. I can assure you of that. Well, uh, again, let's just uh, pray that there is an opportunity for some moisture to head that way and just uh, say a prayer for all those uh, men and women that are fighting these fires and and all the cattle producers that are doing everything they can to take care of their livestock in these situations. It's uh, We were going through that up here in Montana, of course, not to the severity, and I don't want to ever compare the severity mm-hmm. levels, but it's just something that we're dealing with. Uh, but it's also something that uh, I know livestock producers play a very critical role in and in so many aspects of Western grazing. But uh, gosh darn, it's just yeah. it's difficult to see those uh, those pictures, and uh, hopefully we can send some moisture down that way. Amen. But uh, I, I'm sure there's some people tuning into this thinking, oh, my goodness, you probably put the most uh, chatty two people on a podcast and, and they're going to be us <laughs> for the next hour. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Kevin, uh, as I mentioned, you, you do host NCBA's uh, Cattleman to Cattleman TV show that airs weekly on RFD TV. And, and a lot of people are, are probably uh, familiar seeing you on that show. But I, I we were all kind of discussing, you know, I, I bet people really don't know uh, all of Kevin's story here his role in livestock production and his family down there in Colorado and his work in agriculture education and leadership within FFA and and also your consulting work. So I, I think we're going to have a, a good conversation here today and even your, your registered genetics, your limousine genetics uh, that, that you uh, produce as well. But uh, Ke- sure. Kevin, let's just talk about the beginning. When, when do you first remember uh, being in agriculture, growing up on an operation in Colorado, what was that first memory that uh, that you can recall from a young age of, of being in production agriculture? Yeah, you know, a couple of those, I guess. Uh, I remember uh, as, a, as a young boy, um, 
spending time with my mom and dad. We, we farmed and ranched in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, I would say more of a farm operation with some some cows and some irrigated grass and so forth. Um, but a couple of my first memories, we had a, uh, gosh, we had an old, uh, we had an old John Deere um, silage box on a truck. And uh, I remember my mom and I climbing up there with some beet forks uh, back before we had truly, you know, mixer uh, augers, if you will, <laughs> any kind of silage trucks and we would be up there. I don't know how much help I was, but I was, I was trying to mix it along with her as dad was was loading some hay and and uh, silage i remember uh, another memory that i have and maybe it's just because maybe it's just because uh, you know there's pictures but uh, there's there's some great pictures when i was three or four years old standing alongside a, a chute uh, holding a pipette for my dad who was uh, aiing and that would have been the early years uh, when he started first aiing in the 19 uh, i guess early 1970s and I, I guess another one that I would recall is, uh, and again, because of a picture name is um, there was a great, I, I had a lot of kids had stuffed animals and I had this China Hereford bull <laughs> that my, I think it was my dad's. And I would, I would lay down with him in my, with my blanket and take a nap with him every day. And that worked okay. But he ended up, um, you can imagine being made out of China. We, we ended up breaking two or three legs of, of his. So that was my version of the teddy bear. There would be a couple of, uh, couple of experiences. I remember that I was tied directly to agriculture and cattle business early on. And from that young age, uh, obviously you, you, you found a real niche in being active in, in youth organizations and, uh, and uh, really honing your skills, whether that be livestock judging or, or being uh, in FFA events. It, I, I assume, did you do 4-H as well in Colorado? I did, yeah. Yeah, really started 4-H, and I would argue that the 4-H livestock judging program really gave me a foundation early on in terms of speaking and having some ability to, to, to make decisions and try to figure out how to defend those decisions verbally. Uh, I went uh, one of my first um, really big trips of my life was uh, to Louisville, Kentucky to compete in the uh, national 4-H judging contest. And our team was fortunate to win that uh, competition and ended up as a 15 uh, year old, I guess, being able to go to Scotland and judge at the Royal Highland show and then spend about 20 days in in Europe uh, as a 15 year old. And so I will tell you that that was a real formative time in my life. Uh, those early experiences in 4-H led me directly into FFA. And I would argue some of the speaking that I did in FFA was uh, tremendously aided by my 4-H experience. And uh, of course had an opportunity to serve in state and national officer capacities where I try to continue to hone some of those communication and leadership skills. And so I have just enormous amount of gratefulness for the experiences that I had through 4-H and FFA, um, like so many other people in our industry. And you you mentioned the National FFA office, and you know I I, I went up through the FFA ranks as well, and uh, and I, I've told you this story that you know I, I I did run for a national office, and I'm so glad I didn't get it, and, and I'm not trying to be bitter or anything because I just had so many opportunities uh, come just from being involved in FFA when people see that on your resume. Yes. Uh, but, yes. but for yourself, what uh, what was it like uh, being able to not only travel the United States but also travel the world as a national FFA officer and and really advocate for agriculture education mm -hmm. uh, there uh, a, a few years back? Yeah, it has been a few years back, and we won't we won't go into just how many years <laughs> that's been. Like uh, I phrased that I phrased uh, that nicely. 
<laughs> you did phrase that nicely. Very well done. No, I, I would say this. It, it was the single most influential year of my life. There's just no doubt about it. And, and I say that because of the experiences I had, the, 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 the places I, I visited, and, and most importantly, the people that I had an opportunity to meet because of, not because of Kevin Ochsner, but because of a blue and gold jacket. Um, I, I often told people that, uh, you know, I was a pretty ordinary farm boy that had some extraordinary opportunities because of that corduroy jacket. And, um, you know, the opportunity to, uh, I remember vividly sitting down uh, on 277 Park Avenue uh, with the then chairman of uh, Continental Grain, a gentleman who had been a national officer himself, and to take a Colorado kid and drop him in the middle of uh, New York City and, and meet with the, the president CEO of such a huge grain company at the time was just, you know, I would never have the opportunity to do that were it not for the FFA. Uh, we had an opportunity to meet President Ronald Reagan on two occasions, had a chance to go to, to Japan and really gain some appreciation for um, not only Japanese culture, but um, Japanese agriculture and, and to understand how difficult, how different that was. And I became uh, intimately aware eating some, some Kobe beef as an example of the time, just how different their beef was. Um, had just neat, neat opportunities. That was on the front side of biotechnology and Robert Reynolds uh, with Monsanto was the chairman of the foundation that year. And so we had some really unique insight into uh, the early days of uh, bovine somatotropin and some of the early research they were doing in the Roundup Ready field mm -hmm. before, long before that was ever introduced. And so, so no doubt those experiences broadened my horizons tremendously, Lane, and uh, as importantly, the, the opportunity to to just meet so many people like yourself. We didn't meet that year. We're, you're a little younger than I am, or a lot younger. That guy was a twinkle in my dad's of... eye at that point. <laughs> now be careful. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but seriously, when I think of the people that I met that year, who today I do business with in my consulting or, you know, business or in the cattle business, it's just phenomenal the connections that you met or mm -hmm. that you m make during a year like that. So it was an extraordinary opportunity and one that I am uh, very, very grateful for. And I guess the, the thing that I, I should say, even though it really didn't happen during my national officer year, I met a girl during my national officer year who was the first female state president from Nebraska when I was a national officer. Went to the Colt Leadership Conference in Nebraska and spent some time with, with her and her officer team. Um, saw her at the Washington Leadership Conference. Uh, didn't think much about it. But then about two years later, she was serving as a national officer with a very dear friend of mine, an AGR brother from Oklahoma. And um, he kind of helped um, begin stoking the fires of, hey, Kevin, you and Jules would be a great, <laughs> a great match. And then I happened to go to a wedding of a young lady who was national president of my year, Kelly Evans, who was marrying Donald Brown in Texas. And Julie was serving punch, and I happened to be very thirsty that evening. So I, I tell people that I also have my wife through, through FFA. <laughs> it, it, it's funny and uh, uh you know we we're both in ffa you and i we we're also both in the alpha gamma row fraternity and both of our wives names are julie so um that uh <laughs> drinking stories there kevin but that's um, right let's <laughs> 
let's not get him confused. That'd no, be a problem. No, no, no. Uh, but uh, hey, uh, you, you know, you, you, I, we both brought up the uh, the Alpha Gamma Rho fraternity, and for our listeners yeah. out there, they they should be familiar with that. But uh, uh, an agriculture fraternity for kids that are coming in from the country to to the big city, as as Bozeman, Montana was for me. <laughs> but uh, right. you know that uh, I, I truly, God, I I just learned how to be so much more patient around just people and and I was the youngest I was kind of the baby and was by myself at home uh, uh, the last few years I was going to school and so you know just the people you get to meet in AGR and the leadership and the yeah. skills being on campus I, I wouldn't trade my college experience in being active uh, on campus and in, in Greek life or anything oh no doubt and, and so fun story there again just if any young folks are listening uh, how important it is to get involved in, in those organizations and how doors of opportunity open up when you do get involved, right? So as an example, uh, I had an opportunity to serve as VNR recruitment chair. So so uh, uh, chaired the recruitment effort and and really got serious because we were, we were needing some members badly. And my um, having served as a state officer uh, allowed me to know quite a few guys across the state and so forth. So anyway, long story short, I was recruitment chair one year. Well, they had launched a contest uh, the year before in Green Bay, Wisconsin, at a national AGR convention that said um, whoever is gets the biggest recruitment class is going to get an award. And they had this big box on stage. Okay, they turned this box around, and what was in the box? But none other than former Secretary of Agriculture Earl Bo- Earl Butts. And they called it butts in a box. <laughs> and so whoever whoever got the most recruits was going to have the opportunity to have Earl Butts come to their campus and spend a day with them uh, speaking and, you know, doing whatever that uh, chapter would want Dr. Butts to do at the campus. Well, long story short, I did uh, win that award. And we had, I think, 31 or 32 recruits that summer uh, and uh, ended up getting to uh, host Dr. Butts at the Colorado State University campus for a whole day. Got to know him throughout the day. It was just an incredible experience. You know, the the, you know, the amount of uh, stories that that man and jokes that man tells was, was, was phenomenal. Long story short, little did I know, he goes back to Indianapolis and tells these two guys who were Purdue grads, hey, I just met somebody in Colorado that you guys need to hire. And uh, again, long story short, I ended up going to work for that company called Agribusiness Group immediately after college. Uh, two AGR brothers from um, Purdue University had started that, and it was on the recommendation of Dr. Earl Butts that uh, that they reached out to somebody clear out west and and brought me on board well i mean it's just truly it shows what a small world not only agriculture but but truly any type of business or or when you're involved in active in an organization or fraternal organization uh, i i really think that comes through because it's amazing how many uh like state ffa officers that i served with from the various states when when you're at the cattle industry convention or say the american farm bureau convention or just out in washington dc or just even on facebook how many people are involved in public policy or 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 back on the farmer ranch and, and I think uh, that, that is truly one of the most rewarding aspects is, is just uh, getting to, to see all these people that you met over the years really succeed in life. I, I think that's one, one of the best takeaways. I totally agree. But uh, you, you mentioned your time uh, uh, working in, um, in agribusiness and uh, in different ventures. And uh, so so many of us that are involved in, in production agriculture, we, we still have other full-time jobs ju- just to pay the bills and pay the pay those land and cow notes. Um, yeah. 
And uh, what, what, what was it like, the, the time that you spent a majority of your time out of Colorado uh, working in, in agribusiness, but still not being able to get home at, at maybe as much as you, as you wish you could? But, but how did that develop mm-hmm. you in, into the person that you've become today? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, and I think uh, it's, it's fair to say that I'm not unlike a lot of people in our industry. I tell people that my mom and dad were some of the statistics of the 1980s. And so there wasn't a home farm or ranch to come home to when I graduated from college, unfortunately. And uh, we had uh, uh, about 25 head of cows, my brother and I, that were kind of overgrown 4-H projects that we had kind of kept together and farmed those out to a few folks, my brother and several others, while I was back in Indianapolis. But, uh, you know, I had one and only one option, and that was to go get a paying job somewhere to, to pay rent, you know, and, and then to try to work my way back into this business. Um, ended up spending about eight, eight years living in Indianapolis, and it was tough, Lane, I, I have to tell you, right? I mean, for a kid that grows up uh, in the country around livestock and, um, you know, around uh, these blue skies out west, and then you um, move to a truly city, right? Indianapolis is not Chicago, but it is a city, and live in an apartment. And uh, during that time, I also got married. We, we did find a little place out in the country to rent for a little while. But it was a big culture shock. And, and I guess, um, you know, all of us uh, recognize that in order to do what we love, sometimes we have to make some sacrifices. And so during that time, I was certainly sacrificing a lot of things from a lifestyle standpoint. Um, I was a caged cat at times, uh, you know, being in Indianapolis and would try to get to the state fair and go down to Louisville for shows and get out to the National Western Stock Show. But you're right, couldn't get back home very often, right? So you're trying to manage a set of cows from afar and and, and really longing for just some of those everyday moments uh, that we get, uh, you know, those of us that have kind of been bitten by that that livestock bug. But I would tell you this, that that what it did for me is it, A, made me appreciate the West. It made me appreciate um, livestock industry and the people that are in the cattle business specifically. A lot of good people in agriculture in general, but I don't, I don't think there's anybody better than the folks in the cow business. They're just a different set of people, and I've grown up with them, and and uh, I really miss that. And uh, I guess the other thing it did is, uh, you know, the, the opportunity to work for that agribusiness consulting firm uh, gave me some insight into other segments of agriculture that I think have, have helped us build our business now that we've gotten back into production agriculture a bit. Uh, we saw what was happening as an example in the seed industry where seed business was consolidating dramatically and there were becoming a number of family-owned seed companies that were creating linkages and agreements and in some cases then um, becoming part of larger entities like the Monsanto's of the world. And that kind of drove me down a path in our registered business to, to, to say, you know, I want to, I see some of the same sort of things happening in, in the registered seed stock business in terms of scale and the amount of money it takes to collect data like feed efficiency data, genomic research and so forth. And, and that drove us down a business path or a business model of becoming a satellite uh, producer for another registered seed stock entity. So I would tell you that some of those lessons I learned in uh, other segments of agriculture are things that have served me well through these years uh, trying to, to build a, a cow business again. Yeah, and it's uh, my my dad has almost the same story. There really wasn't much to go back to in the 1980s, and and he wasn't encouraged yep. to want to be involved in production agriculture. And it took him, right. you know, many years until after I was born to even just uh, for my my grandparents to be like, "You want to actually buy the place?" And uh, <laughs> and he's been broke ever since. <laughs> and uh, that's right. But um, you you bring up 
you know, still continuing on. And, and I, it's just, I, I can't wrap my head around. And I don't, I think that's, that's something that my generation and the generations to come, we don't know what it was like in the 1980s and, and 20% interest on, on equipment and on loans. Yeah. Um, and I think that is that that's going to hurt us possibly in the long run because uh, the the world is our oyster is what millennials and uh, and whatnot right. have been told. But how did you stay positive through knowing that you know the parents' operation wasn't going to be able to go back? Uh, you weren't going to be able to necessarily go back to that, and you're going to have to go get a job. How, how do you stay positive? Because I, I I know so yeah. many people that just dwell on the fact that, well, this happened and I should have got this ranch. I should have inherited that. How do you stay positive and keep your head up? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and, um, you know, uh, it was, it was tough and still is tough at times. I, I tell people, I feel at times like my grandfather's generation and growing up in the depression in terms of some scarring that, you know, some of the decisions I make or choose not to make, um, some of my risk tolerance and those kinds of things are absolutely a direct result of what I saw personal and up close in the 1980s that I never want to see again, you know, and I never want to, you, want, never want to experience that. And I think it's, I think it's safe to say, um, you know, Lane, that, uh, one thing that I, I would say about that. So many times it was not just, uh, it, it irritated me as a national officer because I ran around in the mid-1980s and they're like, well, wasn't, you know, I'd get on radio shows and they'd talk about, well, isn't it just the bad operators, the inefficient operators that went out of business? Yeah. I said, not necessarily. It was frankly, yeah, it was frankly the folks yep. that were highly leveraged mm-hmm. and that maybe bought a farm at the wrong time. That's what happened in our situation. We we bought a farm at the wrong time and went into uh the 1980s with an extraordinary amount of debt that if that would have come five years before we would have been fine without that debt so timing is everything in life and i think it tells you a a lot but in terms of your comment about positive right i mean i i try to um i i try to always remember that um you know um it is it is a matter of trying to make lemonade out of lemons right and for those of us that um, try to study our faith, you know, trying to, to uh, remind yourself that all things work together for good for those who love God or are called according to his purpose. And, and you know, that has became a very big mantra for me for the rest of my life in that um, I don't see the logic in this myself. It's uncomfortable. I don't even like what's happening, but I am going to trust that somebody somewhere has a better plan. And just as I shared before, I mean, the experiences I gained by going to Indianapolis, if I would have come right back to a farm at home, I wouldn't have had those experiences. So I could only believe that, um, that the good Lord was saying, you know what, for the purpose I have intended for you, um, you know, I'm going to take you a little different path. You may not think this is the right path, but trust me. And, and that's, I guess, the, the best advice I have for everybody is that, you know, we've got to find some way to trust in something bigger than ourselves or else it's awful easy to get pretty pessimistic and negative in life. Very, very, very true. And and from there, Kevin, uh, you, you, your time in, in uh, living in Indiana and, and just uh, in the various positions that you've held, uh, yeah. how, how did you get into this consulting role and uh, helping other mm-hmm. uh, other groups, agriculture groups or other businesses really hone in what, what, what their goal should be and how they should be successful and strategic? How, how did you get in that line of work then? 
Yeah, and I would say, as I said, um, you know, uh, this was a company that uh, that I got a recommendation from Dr. Butts to join, and it was uh, interestingly enough, two guys who were one was former student body of at Purdue University and was a former national officer. It was actually served as national secretary, same position I, I was in. Another one was a state officer in the state of Indiana. And I would tell you that for them, they started a business focused around training in agribusiness. And that's kind of what attracted me to that, that company is for the very first five, six, seven years of my life, I spent most of my time sales and management training uh, or doing sales and management training for seed companies and feed companies and fertilizer companies and farm machinery companies and so forth. They had a really nice client mix. But at that point in time, Lane, it was primarily it was primarily, uh, you know, agricultural input companies. And it was uh, fundamentally sales and marketing training and um, kind of cut my teeth in that area. And then as uh, as I got a little older and more experienced, uh, the company started a strategic consulting business as well as a uh, market research business. And so I had an opportunity to, um, you know, move from the actual sales and marketing training side of the business into more of the strategic consulting where, um, again, it, 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 I would argue that some of the critical thinking skills that, that I developed in livestock judging have, have served me well in that area. Uh, and, and certainly the opportunity to work for lots of different companies across the agricultural space uh, gave me some some experiences and some perspective that that companies found helpful, and so uh, from there I ended up spending 23 years with that company, and then about seven years ago started my own consulting practice called Accelerate, and um, still primarily focused on strategic consulting, developing strategic plans, those kinds of things, as well as keynote speaking, and so those are my two focus uh, areas in, in my own consulting practice. So when you are uh, working with a client, because uh, I, I know you work with uh, agriculture organizations and businesses and associations, uh, do you, I, I'm assuming that you work with uh, livestock operations as well and trying, or, or am I kind of making that up in my head? Yeah, I don't, I don't do as much work with livestock operations as I do, um, you know, larger organizations. Most okay. of I've, I've done some, some consulting work with large feed yards and some uh, larger seed stock entities, but I haven't done a lot of work with, uh, you know, individual farms and ranches, okay. like, to be honest with you. Okay. And uh, most of the work has been with uh, companies that supply inputs into agriculture. Well, I'm going to have to restructure the question I had for you then, but sure. uh, I, I guess when you're meeting with these entities, what are some of the biggest missed opportunities that these businesses maybe overlook or, or stress too much on in their strategic planning? Uh, maybe overlooking that end goal and focusing on, on details maybe that they shouldn't. What, what, what are some of those ways that you walk these groups through really having a solid strategic plan for their future? Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of um, strategic planning is is being able to develop insights, right? And um, insights are not only being able to see kind of what's on the horizon, but then being able to connect the dots, right? And and that's that's part of what is so engaging to me as as you think about even you know the most recent strategic plan that helped develop for the the beef industry when. Um, you know, we started before COVID hit, and, and then obviously COVID hit in March, and we had to continue our process and deliver the, the plan in July. But um, when you, when you th- I, I think if I would pinpoint one thing, I would say, how, how do you put a, a set of people together that develop a plan for the future, not a plan for the, 
the current time, right? And so, um, you know, when you think about things, for instance, in the beef industry, um, and tie a couple of things together, you tie together the fact that sex semen came on on the market. Dairies embrace sex semen tremendously. You you have the fact that that um, you know there's a lot of genetic testing, and the dairy industry moved towards literally testing their dairy cows so that they could then incorporate sex semen to only get heifers out of their top producing cows and everything else in the dairy herd could be, you know, all we need is a, a cow that freshens. And they decided, gosh, we've got to find a way to um, make uh, make a better product out of the rest of those animals, thus being the, the beef dairy crosses. Today, that's one of the big things that I would argue is impacting the beef industry, will continue to in- impact the beef industry, is is the dairy influence in our industry. And, and uh, that, you know, the number of beef dairy crosses that are coming into the, the meat business, it has both positive and negative consequences. Um, another example I'd give, right? I mean, in the midst of, of working with a couple of organizations right now, as we try to ferret out what this whole food service issue means to, to the beef industry. You know, depending on who you talk to, I was talking to somebody uh, on the East Coast last week, and I'd heard numbers of one out of every four restaurants closing. This guy quoted me uh, that they believe 40 to 50 percent of the restaurants up and down the East Coast will be closing for good. When you start thinking about that and taking the next step of saying, all right, so that restaurant that served, you know, a ribeye steak, his his exact comment was he said, a ribeye is not a great piece of product to go home and take out meal. You know, now there are other beef products at work. But but the fundamental question is, how do we capitalize on the flip side of the, the equation that I talked to another gentleman two days later that said, our people have gotten to eat restaurants quality steaks that have been sold through the retail supermarkets and they're never going back. We, we have, we have created a new set of customers that have gotten spoiled with some great steaks. They've learned how to cook at home and this is great news for the beef industry. So that's two sides of the same coin. And, and, and it's a great example of saying what you believe about the future and, and our ability to tie together the implications of that. Does that mean that we're going to go towards more thin meats and burgers and those kind of takeouts? Or does that mean that we're moving towards a, a, a scenario where there's going to be a lot more beef directly sold to homeowners uh, coming frozen to you or picking up um, you know, meat at the restaurant with all your side dishes and then you pick up the beef and you take it home and throw it on your grill I mean, thinking through some of the dynamics and what that means to both an individual business and an industry is uh, is both fascinating to me and, and incredibly challenging. No, and I, I, I just hope that our friends that are, are tuning into this, uh, and most likely they're going to be a part of that uh, up-and-coming generation out on, on the operations. But w- when we look at looking at a five to 10 year plan and not knowing what the future is. I mean, what, what if COVID wouldn't have hit? What, I mean, I just think our calf price is what they were projected a dollar 70 at 550 pounds uh, at, uh, yep. at the cattle industry convention in, in, in February, 2020. Yep. Um, we averaged a dollar yep. 50 and just think what that extra 20 cents would do for helping 
pay off debt, expanding an operation, uh, making some decisions, but we right. can't see that. But what uh, what are some of the, the key things that you would, uh, on, on a consulting level, uh, and, and I really enjoyed what you just said, but just a, yeah. a few bullet points that people can think about every day um, when, when they wake up or when they wrap up their day thinking, uh, did, did this go right? How do I adapt mm-hmm. for tomorrow? What, what are um, some suggestions you would have? And, and if you need to send me yeah. the bill for this consultation, uh, <laughs> we'll make sure and get it taken care of. That's right. I, I, I wish, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I haven't even written a book that we could, you know, kind of promote at the end of this thing. If you want to know more, uh, you know, buy Kevin's book. That's classic. That's still on my bucket list. Uh, our, our friend Baxter Black uh, told me years ago that I needed to write a book, and uh, I don't know that I'm as good an author as he is. Uh, you know, I, I would say a couple things from a strategy standpoint. Uh, you know, the, the one thing that is always critically important is is to really define your goals, right? Um, get get crystal clear on what you want to accomplish. And and whether I'm talking about my own business and us having to say, as an example, when we kind of hit the reset button on our cattle business, was my goal to have my own production sale, as an example? You know what I mean? Uh, was my goal simply to, you know, have a experience with my kids, some 4-H projects and show steers or something like that? What What is my goal? What am I trying to accomplish here? So, so I think I think getting crystal clear on how you define success is really important. And then I think the second thing is that um, sometimes we don't do a very good job. We, we like to we like to play by somebody else's playbook. We like to say, well, that worked for Kevin. I'll just do exactly what he does. Well, all of us, whether it be businesses or individuals, we have different resources, competencies, capabilities, uh, assets you know, at our disposal. And I think the really cool part of strategy is is figuring out based on your set of assets, competencies, relationships, how can you tie those together in a business model that is unique and different that works for you, may not work for anybody else in the world, but it works for you. Um, I've always told my kids, and this is a this is a, a good you know piece of advice that I use with clients, said always fight fair, but avoid fair fights. Um, I'm a big believer, you know, I, I, I believe you, you know, whenever you're competing, compete fairly, compete with a level of morals and ethics and everything else. But at the end of the day, I want to enter, uh, uh I don't want to enter a contest having some sort of a competitive advantage. Right. And so, so as you think about that, a little beef business we started, you know, my wife worked in, uh, animal health for years before our first child was born. She's a great salesperson. Well, guess what? Not everybody's married to a wonderful salesperson, right? I was one, married to a wonderful, wonderful salesperson. I was married to somebody who had a passion for for livestock. Um, we happened to live close in, in an area that, unlike other areas in the country, we had access to some small packing plants. Um, and then we happened to be 50 miles away from Denver, Colorado, and the Front Range of Colorado, which is an incredibly populous center. You tie all those things together, and you're going, wow, one of the real – one of the real opportunities here to maximize the utilization of those resources and assets is some sort of a, you know, family-based beef business. So, so that is a microcosm of an example, I guess, Lane, that I would say that, that I think getting crystal clear on what, you know, how you define success, what your goals are, and, and then getting really creative, not just taking a play out of somebody else's playbook, but getting creative about saying, let's lay out all of our skills, competencies, assets, and, and figure out how these meld together in a way that provides a competitive advantage and gives us an opportunity to do something better and differently than somebody uh, down, down the road. Um, one other thing, 
you know, I, I've told people I live two miles away from one of the largest cattle feeding entities in the in the world, Five Rivers Cattle Feeding. Um, have a hundred thousand head of cattle two miles away from us, right? Well, if I think I'm going to beat Five Rivers Cattle Feeding, feeding, you know, being more efficient or cost effective, I'm absolutely kidding myself. I, I've got to have a different strategy and a different game plan than a Five Rivers Cattle Feeding if I intend to be successful in the beef business. Because I promise you that I'm not going to outcompete them when it comes to cost of gain and, and those kind of efficiency measures, if that makes sense. Nope, nope, totally. But uh, yeah, I wish we had that book to plug. And, and folks, uh, folks, at least they can <laughs> rewind They can rewind this and, and take those notes down. But uh, I appreciate you sharing a little bit, bit of your insight and, and uh, your expertise in working in, in strategic planning. But uh, yeah. I, I, I know that everyone that knows you and Julie, uh, uh, that your greatest accomplishment is the family that Julie and you have created. Um, we, we haven't talked about your kids yet. Uh, uh, yeah. How were they doing? Let's talk about their passions uh, for growing up sure. in rural Colorado and, and what they're up to. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, um, Lane. And if there's, uh, yeah, if, if I do nothing else in this world, but... Uh, raise three well-adjusted um, who, who believe in God and uh, find a way to use their passions and skills to benefit others, then, then I will have succeeded. And so um, I, I do take that seriously. And I think that, uh, you know, for many of us in agriculture, um, you know, our families are perhaps the most lasting part of any legacy we would leave. Um, so, so a couple things, got in, uh, three children and my oldest, Caitlin, I would say all three of them have been very engaged in production agriculture. And Julie likes to tell people that given the amount of travel that I did, uh, they had to get pretty involved pretty early on. And and so I think a lot of times that level of responsibility that uh, the kids grow up with is pretty unique in agriculture and production agriculture and the cattle business specifically. So so we think that was a big part of uh, you know who they've become now as, as they become young adults. My oldest daughter, Caitlin, just graduated from Belmont University. She uh, discovered a singing passion and gift at the county fair and where she won a, an America or a little idol contest at the Weld County Fair when she was about nine years old and pursued that passion, had an opportunity to sing the national anthem at the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas uh, when she was, I think, a junior in high school, sophomore, junior in high school. And uh, she, she came out of that arena and she says, I've got to do this for, for the rest of my life. And so um, she went back to Belmont University and got a degree in uh, commercial music with a uh, minor in music business, has released one EP, EP and has um, a website and uh, had a whole summer full of um, pretty fun gigs at state fairs, county fairs, rodeos planned. And you can imagine most of those were canceled. So I told her, uh, you know, she, she couldn't have picked a worst degree, a worst degree to graduate from in the year of COVID than anything in the entertainment industry. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I want to brag about her for just a minute and just saying that uh, I hope she's learned a level of grit living in this family and, and growing up where she has in the sense that, um, you know, you can either cry in your soup and get negative as we talked before, or you can think about the possibilities and say, all right, we're going to, we're, we're going to, kind of take a little detour here now god what do you have in, in mind so she's putting a couple things together she continues to believe it or not get some performances she you know weddings and um she, she actually there are several um she played at a charlie event earlier this year in missouri and she's got some things going in this winter for livestock events um she is um she's always had a passion for older people 
And so she went and got a job in an elder care uh, business that provides in-home care for the elderly. She um, has become a worship leader at a satellite church of ours in Windsor, Colorado. So she's using her musical gift there. And uh, obviously, um, she continues to uh, to pursue her passion, trying to, to write some songs and figure out how she claws her way into the music business. Middle daughter, Ashlyn, uh, served as state of play president last year, took a year off and just started school at Texas Tech University. She is uh, working at Raider Red Meats down there and is learning a lot about the, the meat business and I think has some, some great mentors to learn from down there. And so she's majoring in animal science right now with a minor in, in uh, business and looking forward to her four years at uh, Texas Tech. And then my son is a junior in high school and he is all about ranching and uh, to a lesser extent farming and the horse business. Um, he, he's, um, he, he likes rain cow horses and has kind of gotten involved in that as well. And I fully anticipate, uh, you know, him being involved in production agriculture and specifically the cattle and ranching business at some level. And so um, I've, I've jokingly told him that we are going to ask his teachers to flunk him because I'm not ready to lose his help. <laughs> we've not done we've not done very good uh, generational succession planning just yet, and we're not exactly sure how this uh, business operates uh, in about 18 months when he goes off to college. So, yep. so uh, I may need some consulting myself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you, you reference your operation and uh, the, the uh, registered cattle that uh, you breed. Uh, what, what, what got you started in the limousine uh, uh, breed? Yeah. You know, um, it really was just dad. I, he had given me going back to that, uh, that AI deal, he had given me a two-year-old Angus heifer when I was two years old and, you know, sold some of her calves. And when I was about nine years old, I bought some uh, half-blood limousine cows. That was when, obviously, the Continental cattle were becoming pretty, um, you know, pretty popular. Mom and dad bred limousine cattle through the 1980s. And uh, we had a set of limousine cattle, uh, as I said, about 25 cows when I graduated from college and so forth that my brother and I had, had kind of kept together. And, and so uh, that, that it was my history and obviously knew a lot of people in that business. Um, and so when we decided to come back here and, and hit the reset button, we thought we would, uh, you know, would stick with that breed. We have both limousine and Limflex cattle, and um, we think they serve a, a good purpose in, in a, um, you know, a crossbreeding program where you're trying to uh, both uh, maximize uh, efficiency and, uh, and also maintain uh, quality and, and, um, uh, profitability in the feed yard. So, so when did you, uh, take the big step into, uh, taking some of that, uh, beef and, uh, creating your own uh, branded product? And, uh, uh, when did that come about? You know, we'd always, uh, sold extra 4-H calves and so forth, like a lot of other 4-H families lane. And so, uh, you know, we were, we were, I suppose my mom was probably selling six or eight head, you know, during all those years of 4-H and shortly after in college. Uh, we, we got serious about the beef business when we moved back here. And so I think it was in, uh, I think it was probably about 2000, uh, maybe that we, uh, you know, created a logo and, and started uh, getting serious about trying to, to, to uh, actually we went out for time and we're buying some additional cattle because we didn't have enough cattle to fill the need. And um, so trying to grow, grow it since that time, we have, uh, I think Julie will have sold 65 or 70 head this last year. And so we try to take uh, literally the top end of the cattle, you know, go into either replacements for ourselves or um, are sold through 
uh, wolf cattle company and our satellite arrangement uh, in terms of the, the, the bulls and then the cattle that don't make, uh, you know, breeding cattle or, or, or don't make the cut in that regard, we feed out here in our place and, and then sell halves, quarters, and holes uh, to people up and down Colorado's front, front range. Now, uh, you probably, just like everyone else, kind of ran into an issue with processing uh, when, when COVID and still and getting those animals uh, uh, butchered. Uh, what opportunities did you find to, to make sure that you can get a, a dressed and hanging on the rail carcass? We had, uh, yeah, we, we felt like we got the double whammy lane because we had our own version of the Holcomb fire here in uh, in Colorado. So the, the packing facility that we and, and processors that we've been working with for the last, I think, 13 or 14 years had their own fire in the last, I think, the third or fourth week of April. Oh. And originally they were just going to be down um, until the middle of May. And then they called us and said, no, we're going to be down all summer. And then they called us and said, we're not going to be harvesting any cattle until next January. So here we had uh, in the midst of COVID when, you know, customers were calling, they were panicking. We're, we are still going to get our beef, aren't we? And, you know, we have neighbors and we have a few extra pounds of ground beef. And I, I want to share with my neighbors, but not if we can't get, you know, the beef. And so they were asking us those questions and we were panicking a little bit at the time, obviously, wondering how we were going to turn these cattle into beef. And so, uh, yeah, so so between my wife and I, we got awful creative and started calling some people. Luckily, luckily, this happened early enough that we started calling around before lots of things really came crashing in around us. And we ended up trailering cattle as far away as Raider Red Meat to Texas Tech. Um, my friend Robbie LaValle that I went to college yep. with and was CCA president a couple of years ago, she and, and her team have a packing facility on the Western Slope that's five hours away. Um so, so one was 10 hours away, one was five hours away, and the third packing facility was two hours away in Sterling. So we ended up getting them all converted into, into, into meat this summer, but not without a lot of fuel and a lot of pain and agony. Um, hopefully we develop some real loyalty among our customers for keeping their freezers stocked. Yeah, and how do you see that growing even more? Because we, we've had multiple podcasts on the direct consumer marketplace, and and from a strategic standpoint, uh, how does this change your outlook? Uh, obviously, you have a great program with your registered animals and then the process, uh, the ones that don't make the cut. Uh, it's a great sure. model. But uh, how do you see this changing uh, post-COVID and consumer preference and just the relationships that are being made because of the direct-to-consumer marketplace and, and COVID? Yeah. I think, I mean, I do believe that, that this experience is going to have some lasting impact on consumer habits, right? Um, I, I do tend to believe that people have had to figure out how to cook at home. And, and I think that that's positive for the beef industry. And Lane, I think that that'll continue a bit. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't a bunch of people out there that, that are tired of doing dishes and are ready to go to the next restaurant. But as I talk to people in the food service industry, as I said, um, they're pretty reticent of, of just, number one, how quickly things are going to open up to full capacity right? and, and how many restaurants are going to be left when this uh, when, when this all settles out. So so I think there's been some behavioral shift is, is what I'm saying. I also think that, you know, people never experienced a situation where they went to the grocery store and there wasn't any hamburger to purchase. And so I think that for a subset of population. Um, there are some people that we sold beef to for the first time this year who literally bought their first freezer. 
um, some some of which had to wait. You know, they, they called back in May and they didn't get their freezer until like August or first of September. Um, so so I do think there's going to be some of that happen that people literally, you know, see the see the, the, the benefit of of thinking a, a little more than hand to mouth and, and buying more than just what they need. But let's be clear. Um, we are in a society that, you know, it takes quite a little money. If you're going to buy a half, half a beef and a freezer, there's a lot of people that just aren't budgeted for that. Right. And so I don't think we're going to flip flop the entire American economy into, you know, canning their own vegetables and buying frozen beef. I do think the one thing that is, that is going to be a long-term change is, um, you know, getting beef delivered directly to your door. I, I do think folks that are able to do some home delivery, I think that will absolutely stick. I do believe that, um, you know, given the money out of the CARES Act, there's going to be some small processors pop up. And, uh, and I do think there will be more, you know, farm to fork kind of uh, arrangements being developed. So I, I think it provides lots of opportunities for, um, for a lot of folks. I will tell you this, the caution that I have is I would challenge folks to do it right, right? So we, we had an experience with somebody who told us about this neighbor of theirs who had some cattle that weren't finished yet, and they ended up taking 950 a 1,000 pound cattle, um, getting them harvested, and then customers were not very happy with that. Uh, and, and my experience is, you know, you sell customers a, a bad, you know, half a beef, and, and then they're like, oh, yeah, it took us four years to get through that stuff. That was so awful. Mm -hmm. And it just burns the bridge. And so I'm hopeful that we don't get people who are wanting to the true backyard people that are wanting to jump into this and, and, and aren't thoughtful about, OK, when is this animal going to be truly finished? And, you know, is this just a rope and steer or is this an animal that that is going to truly satisfy somebody in terms of their beef quality and, and make sure that we're we're uh, we're not burning bridges as we go? I totally agree with that. And one thing with COVID, I like my wife and I, we were we're located in Bozeman, uh, but I, yeah. I think we spent I don't know how whether my folks' operation or our in-laws' operation. Um, I, I don't know how many weeks over the summer we spent more than we usually do because we 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 have to get out of this overgrowing, too fast-growing city. That's just all out of staters right. coming up here. But right. I, I mean, I think COVID is going to change uh, in a positive way. More young people moving back to rural communities where they came from, as long as there is a broadband infrastructure in place. Yes, uh, because yes. my my wife and I both need it. Uh, she 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 yep. is uh, she's actually on the judicial branch as a as a uh, magistrate here in the state of Montana, and myself sure. with with media and everything. But there's nothing better than being able to get your radio programs done and then go right away and, and work cows horseback in just a matter of minutes right. and not having to drive right. an hour and a half or five hours to, to get to an operation. Right. But yeah. it, when we look at that, more people coming back to these rural communities, uh, yeah. I, I think that is uh, such a great opportunity to revitalize our small towns across the nation. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, and I, I think just um, you said you said a mouthful, broadband, right? I mean, the point is that if you have access to high-speed Internet, you, there's a lot of businesses that you can do and a lot of knowledge work that you can do um, in the middle of eastern Colorado or western Montana or wherever you sit, right? But you do have to have access to that technology. 
um, and, and, and that infrastructure, I should say. So I agree with you. I think, um, you know, whether it be, um, you know, uh, uh, folks that um, uh, build their own, you know, beef business and have something directly connected to their, you know, outside ranching operations, as an example, or uh, whether it be somebody who is, uh, you know, my, my wife does some part-time work for progressive beef uh, in auditing feed yards and those kinds of things. And, um, you know, 20 years ago, she probably couldn't have done a job like that without being in an office and, and, and that, that, you know, in kind of environment. There are a lot of jobs out there, Lane, that, um, you know, people can bolt on uh, in order to, as you indicated before, you know, make some land payments and some cow payments and so forth. Or for those of us who, um, you know, didn't have much of a base that, that, that we inherited and kind of have to claw and scratch our way into this. And we all know that it's a very, very capital intensive business. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just, uh, I, I'm excited about the future. Um, COVID-19 has sure put a damper on a lot of things, but uh, uh, whether it was we, we were just discussing the opportunities for more growth in our rural communities and, mm -hmm. and more opportunities to market beef and uh, help people yep. understand beef cuts better, I, I think that's a real win uh, in, in a very dire situation with COVID. But, Kevin, I know you've had a long day. I've had a long day sure. broadcasting, but... Uh -huh. uh, any last thoughts or comments that you would like to share with our, our, our audience? And actually, no, before we do that, how did you yeah. become the host of NCBA's Cattleman to Cattleman? I mean, it's not like, oh. I, I think you got a little downtime every day, it sounds like, you know. <laughs> but how, how, did, how, how did that opportunity uh, uh, come yeah. about for you? Uh, real, real quickly, I mean, um, I, looking back, they were starting a TV show. There were some people that were working at NCB at the time um, and officers that knew of me through FFA and through my consulting and knew that I did a lot of speaking, knew that I lived within 60 miles of Denver. And so I'd gotten a call, hey, we're going to start this TV show on RFDTV. And would you like to come down and, and uh, try out for audition for the, the role of host? Uh, of course, I had never taken any, you know, I actually started out uh, thinking I was going to major in ag journalism and only did that my freshman year in college and then quickly changed my major. So I really didn't have any journalism classes, didn't have any media classes. Really all I had done was the, the experience and exposure I'd have as a uh, state national officer. And then of course my job in, in speaking and, and training, I went down there uh, lane and it was kind of interesting because everybody else that showed up that day had, uh, had their agents with them. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't know I was supposed to bring an agent. So I showed up by myself that uh, probably was, was point one that this guy is not exactly a professional. I told my wife that night, I said, I wish I would have brought you down there today and introduced you with a different last name, your maiden name or something, and told him you were my agent. It would have been looked a little more official. But uh, long story short, I didn't get the job, and they gave it to uh, another lady for a time. But they, they told me afterwards, said, you know, we really like your voice, and we would uh, wondered if you might be interested in some voiceover work. Which, which led me to believe that I did have a face for radio. And so <laughs> the old joke that all of us, all of us tell, but it, it uh, was a little too true at that point in time. Did some voiceover work for about a year, if I recall. And then there was a time when I think the, the, the host had gotten sick or was unable to do something. And they had me come down and, and it happened to be a panel show, if I'm not mistaken. And I think as much as anything, they appreciated the fact that because of my understanding of the industry, I could kind of carry on a conversation and ask some questions and engage some folks in a panel dialogue uh, and what I may have given up in terms of professional hosting capabilities I made up for in terms of uh, some passion and uh, experience with the beef industry. So after that, they um, offered me the job and I've been doing that, I guess, for about 
10 or so years, something like yeah. that, 10, 11. I can't remember how many it's been, but it's been a wonderful experience and uh, certainly enjoy working with true professionals like yourself and Russell. And, and just again, going back to what we said earlier, I'm sure you would agree that the people that we get to meet, the interviews we get to have, the discussions that we have with those folks, both on and off the air and the insight that, that we gain about the industry and the issues facing the industry, uh, just one of the real, real neat benefits of, uh, uh, of serving in that capacity. So, so I thoroughly enjoy it and um, enjoy the fact that, that people watch it because, as you know, people don't watch. We don't have much of a show for very long. Exactly. Well, I, I want to describe Russell and I as true professionals. I mean, I, I didn't take a media class either in college. It's just more like you jump off the deep end and, and you learn to be a professional. <laughs> you learn to yeah. be a professional BSer. <laughs> Right, there you go. I'm, I'm just there trying to pay well, for my cows. <laughs> isn't that the truth? It, it's it, it, that's a great motivation, isn't yep. it, Lane? Yep, <laughs> it, it is. I can actually say it's a pretty big day. I paid off my student loans today. Like I I I, I sent it oh, off, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be having some Coors waters here, Coors Lights. I, I mean, here in a, in a little bit. But <laughs> you know, I don't want I don't want to get political with you, but you 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 may not have. Uh, Maybe you shouldn't have done that quite so soon because depending on how this election transpires, there may be all kinds of student loans forgiven, right? <laughs> I know, but I just I want to be honest someday when someone asks me a question about that. But uh... <laughs> well, oh. I would, I would, yeah, just real clear. I, I, I would hope, you know, because there are some of us that actually went ahead and paid for our college i would hope that that's not a case but but now we're getting political so we'll see what happens definitely but uh, uh kevin uh I, i'll jump back to that previous question I, any last yeah. thoughts comments that, that you want to share with our audience here today before i let you uh put your hat up on the hook and uh kick back and relax for the day yeah no actually go out and finish up chores here um <laughs> you, you know I, I would just say this that um I, I am I am bullish on beef lane, and I'm built bullish on you know U, U.S. beef. We we've got challenges ranging from you know the sustainability uh, issues and articles that, that we see popping up in you know in uh, newspapers all over the country about uh, you know flatulated cows and everything else. And we certainly have challenges in terms of alternative proteins and so forth. But the more people I talk to, whether they be retailers or, or food service folks or actual consumers, um, people like beef. And, and I think that um, for professional folks that, that want to create great beef and do it in a profitable manner, I think there's lots of opportunities in the future. So I would I would never, first and foremost say that, gosh, if we have some people on, on the uh, podcast that, um, that have a passion for this, don't let the current circumstances and situations uh, diminish your um, d d diminish your excitement for the beef industry, but I would quickly follow that up saying that um, you know your business model might look different than somebody else's business model, or that your grandpa's business model was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and, and I think we need to be open minded. We've we've had that conversation today, right? You got to be open minded about what does your business model look like that allows you to to get a foothold in this business and then you know grow it from there. And, um, and so I would challenge people to be, you know, really creative and open-minded in, in thinking about that. And the final thing I'd say is that, um, you know, for me, it's all about people, right? I mean, um, the, the fellow that started, uh, started Starbucks made a comment once that said, uh, we're not in the coffee business serving people. We're in the people business serving coffee. 
And, and I, I would share that with people. There are, you know, if you're going to be in, in a business, there's no better be, business to be in than, than the cow business in terms of the people that are in it. And I would just challenge uh, listeners today to do what I know I have and probably you have as well. And that is surround yourself with industry experts, right? Spend time buying them a drink, buying them a coffee, buying them breakfast, giving them a call, uh, picking their brain and um, surround yourself with smart people. Because if you do that, um, I think you can, uh, you, you can be quite successful in this business. Well, very, very good words and a lot of great advice for our listeners, Kevin. And uh, I just want to thank you for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to just uh, sit down for an hour and, and talk about life. Like I said, it, it's just a regular old BS session that, that I like to have. But uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, And a reminder for our listeners, again, uh, NCBA's Cattleman to Cattleman TV show. It airs every Tuesday, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. And uh, for more information on the TV show and more on Kevin, that can be found at ncba.org and click on the Cattleman to Cattleman uh, tab. And uh, as for your operation and your branded beef uh, program, is there a website for that where folks can learn more about that operation? You know, I, I hate to tell you that we don't even have a website for that. It's uh, it's one of the, the cobbler's uh, children have no shoes. My wife tells me that <laughs> we're going to have one of those here shortly, but it's been phenomenal what she's been able to do with pamphlets and yep. um, personal selling. And uh, so, so I hate to tell you that there's, there's not a place to go to look. <laughs> hey, word of mouth, everything. I mean, that's a cheaper way to do it when you can make it work. So that <laughs> good for you guys. But uh, again, Kevin Auctioner, uh, Colorado rancher, uh, strategic planner, and of course, host of NCBA's Cattleman to Cattleman. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Hey, thanks for the time, Lane. Really enjoy the conversation. All right, friends, that'll do it for this. Oh, I forgot, Kevin. Uh, this is yep. my typical move here. Every person that's a guest on the show has to give their cattle call when when they're going out and calling their cows. And what what is your oh, cattle okay. call? Come on, come on. You know, I'd say that's probably about 90% of what everyone says. But uh, all right, friends. Kevin Auctioner, thank you for joining us. And for our friends tuning in, make sure and subscribe on your podcast listening devices to the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Northland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.